0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, friends, and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Avril Earls and I'll be your host for this episode. Today we'll be talking to Para Kerrigan in his new book, Ish, New Ish book, LGBTQ: Visibility, Media and Sexuality in Ireland. Para Kerrigan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Avril. It's my pleasure
0: it's uh i'm really excited to be able to chat with you uh after so many weeks of these sort of email correspondences um i wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself
1: absolutely so i am a assistant professor at university college dublin where i research and lecture in the areas of digital media research theory and practice the digital self about new and emerging technologies and data cultures but also specialize in my own particular research interests which is sexuality studies and queer theory particularly as that intersects or relates to queer irish culture so that's particularly where my my passion lies and what has driven this book, especially. So that's kind of where I've, I've come from. And that's kind of what I do.
0: Wonderful. Uh, and I think we can just dive right in here. You propose a really interesting framework, I think, for examining queer visibility in media studies that diverges a, a little bit, I think, from the norms of the field. Would you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So the norms of the field have tended to be, in terms of looking at surveying media and looking and examining and scrutinizing the archive and reclaiming the archive to a degree to find out where we were and oftentimes theories research and the literature tends to focus on the representational dynamics and that is a really crucial and important thing that we need to focus on because representation as we know even in our contemporary era with streaming technologies and new and emerging ways in which we can consume media Representation has a particular, particularly powerful role in how particularly minority groups can self-identify and relate to each other. However, when we discuss representation, it is often without the broader context, and that's kind of where my framework with the book comes in. Because I actually began this book in the realms of a positive versus negative visibility dynamic, and that kind of brought me down to a very limited rabbit hole where I couldn't really get out of. And from that, it was actually quite an interesting learning curve where the power of images, particularly with minority groups, such as the Irish queer community, cannot easily be divided into positive versus negative. But that is a broader cultural trend and broader dynamics that are shaping those representations. So with that then, I fostered a new and emerging field within media studies and queer media studies itself referred to as queer production studies. So what queer production studies is, it's a derivative, not even derivative, it's a subsection of production studies which seeks to use social science methods in the media industry to go beyond, I suppose, what appears on camera, to look at the production dynamics, the decision-making processes, the hiring practices, who is working behind the camera, how the media works, what is the political economy of what happens behind the camera to produce what appears on screen. So once I did that, that was kind of like opening up a a white rabbit that I was chasing through Wonderland, as it were. So I was kind of through the looking glass with regards to my own particular project. And I'll speak to this in a number of examples as we go. But it enabled me to go beyond the textual analysis. I was enabled to interview, for example, producers, writers, LGBTQ activists that were involved On the ground with the movement to obtain really crucial images and really crucial moments of visibility on screen that changed a lot of people's lives. So it told a much more complex and nuanced story. And I suppose that's why, in a very long winded way, I chose this framework of looking beyond representation and looking at the varying factors such as the legal context for queer people, the industrial context in terms of media for queer people, and the broader socio cultural context.
0: Yeah, I think I'm, as a historian myself, I it really spoke to me in a way that's that's different than most media studies books that I've encountered. So, I really really appreciate the dynamic elements of this book. Um and consider, you know, thinking about that sort of negative portrayal, you open the first chapter with the, the horrific murder of Declan Flynn, a queer bashing victim in Fairview Park, Dublin, which was perpetrated by five young men in 1982. So, will you tell us a little bit about why you chose that story to begin with and how this intro chapter sort of frames the rest of the book? Absolutely.
1: So as a young gay man myself, and as I kind of, as I said to you just there, Avril, when I kind of found out white rabbit that I was kind of chasing through queer Irish history, just to kind of start at the, at the beginning, perhaps of when I was a PhD student, I kind of, as I was becoming more comfortable with my sexuality, I wanted to kind of look towards my queer lineage, because as queer people, the history isn't embedded within our mainstream narratives. We have to go looking for it. And we have to go foraging within the archives, within the cracks, to see where it was we have come from and who our elders are and wh- what our community is and where they were. So, when I began this project and when I began this whole genealogical impulse to see where our community came from, how do we get to where we are? And I began this project pre marriage equality. So, like, it was a very particular. Turbulent time um, in 2013, 2014 when I started beginning this. And Pantygate in particular was just happening on the cusp of me starting that, which we'll get into in a while. But I came across the murder of Declan Flynn and I kept coming back to it. And not that it's the first moment of a very public queer um, instance happening within the news reportage or even within the gay community itself, but it served as a moment that represented the ways in which Irish society vilified, abused, um, any number of words I can come up with here, completely the climate of criminality that was in place at the time for the community under the, the hangover of the Victorian morality legislation from the British colonial government, that was still there. So the climate of criminality was still there. There was an endemic homophobia on the streets of Dublin and across Ireland at the time that manifested in these queer bashing incidents that led to the death of Declan Flynn. And the fact that these five young men who perpetrated this horrific, brutal crime were let off on suspended sentences, with the judge declaring this as not being considered as murder, that just represented the value that queer people had in Irish society at that time. And this served as an important cultural touchstone, which is why I begin the book with this moment. Because the murder of Declan Flynn, on the one hand, shows the brutality and the reality, and the gritty reality of being queer in Ireland at this time. But it also shows the, the vivaciousness, the tenacity, the righteous anger, and the rightly modulated anger of the community when they've said, no more, enough is enough. And it has become known as Ireland's stonewall for varying different reasons. This was the tinderbox that erupted in fire. And this is why I choose this as the moment, because for the first time, the community angrily begins to speak back to the state saying this is not acceptable and not only are they speaking back to the state they're speaking directly to the media they're beginning to make networks with press they're beginning to make networks or corral rte the public service broadcaster to give coverage to this event and they want to generate this visibility to on the one hand show other queer people in ireland that yes we exist But also to say enough is enough, and we want to use media activism as one of an important arm of our liberation strategy for the emancipation of queer people in Ireland. So there's varying reasons as to why Declan Flynn is there, but also I think it's just really important that we commemorate Declan Flynn and that Declan Flynn, whenever we have any discussion of of queer Irish history, is mentioned. And he is such an important, crucial figure that still. Hangs over this and has empowered in his death. He has rested in power and has empowered generations beyond him. And I think it's really important that this book is an intergenerational piece as well. Okay. It's kind of looking at historical media, but it's also hoping to impart some knowledge to new generations as well as remind people who lived through these times, which I didn't live through. So I spoke to many people who didn't live through these times. So it's an intergenerational piece as well. So to remember the man that it was as he was
0: yeah absolutely and the obviously the suffering that queer men in particular throughout the 20th century experienced under the criminal laws and i think though same sex desiring men were put sort of through a ringer when their gross indecency trials were published in newspapers throughout the 20th century you rightly point out that there were very there's very little in the way of televised media coverage So what were the most important media moments for Queer Ireland before 1980? Because we see this big shift and we'll talk about the big shift in the 1980s. But what were those earlier moments and why were those moments important?
1: So to begin, that kind of speaks to the first chapter of the book, which is titled Respectively Gay. And it's titled Respectively Gay for a very particular reason. And I'm sure we'll perhaps poke or poach at the Dynamics of respectability as we go. But we begin pre 1980s with a very particular motivation. So, as a result of a wave of new social movements sweeping across Europe, particularly Western Europe, and not to mention the Stonewall riots in the US, which occurred in 1969, and not to mention that Stonewall is the be all and end all of queer liberation, we have to also remember in the ways in which we commemorate, there's the Compton Cafeteria riots, a series of riots across LA that had trans people front and center of this and it's kind. we might get into a conversation later in the ways in which you know these historical narratives become dominated by the g and the l of our community and our acronym but rather at the very forefront of what actually purported and began the movements it was our trans brothers and sisters that were really at the front and the center that engendered the angry activism that we became familiar with but we, that's perhaps, I, I digress. And if I do digress, bring me back to the, to the main point. But as a result of Stonewall being a touchstone, it was a touchstone, so we can give it that. It engendered and became this symbolic, dose for the Irish community in which they said, so that's happening in the US. There's some movements towards progress. The UK has the, the Gay Liberation Front and a few other movements beginning to happen. So with that then, Senator David Norris, um, Edmund Lynch, Bernard Keogh, formed the Irish gay rights movement in 1974. This came off the back of the sexual liberation movement, which is part of a conference in Trinity College in 1973, the year prior. So with the founding of the Irish gay rights movement, deliberately at the very get-go, the media was a deliberate target for how they would progress the agenda of gay rights. Because for one, they recognised that Ireland had a scarce media environment. So in the 70s to the 80s even to the 90s we are in what john ellis refers to as the era of scarcity and with the era of scarcity it essentially means that the options that we have for consuming media are so few that we have no other choice but to watch one or two or three channels so there was an opportunity here to reach huge swaths of people and this is going like audiences are now so fragmented across across channels platforms streaming platforms YouTube, TikTok. That was not the case back here. We corralled around particular centralized mainstream media forms, and television was one. And in Ireland, television was the biggest media form throughout the period of the book that I discuss, 1974 to 2008. So they deliberately wanted to target television and the press to engender and to change the stereotypes around gay men. David Norris and Edmund Lynch have referred to the stereotypes being a trench coat wearing. Elderly man looking to purvey amongst younger boys and the the paedophile trope that kind of has emerged weirdly in our Antifa rhetoric and whatnot with the, the far right. But that's again a different story, the eternal recurrence of the stereotypes, as it were. But what happens then in the 70s is as a result of Edmund Lynch, Edmund Lynch was very strategically placed within the Irish gay rights movement because he was a producer. In RTE. He was a sound man. So this was really important because this placed him really close to the gatekeepers and the editors that could give the green light to enabling queer people to appear on shows or to commission shows dedicated to queers. So with that, Edmund Lynch and if anyone who knows Edmund, who listens, knows that he is a very consistently um what's the best word to describe him? He will not take no for an answer. He is tenacious in his approach to getting things done and generally will always get his own way in the end. So he consistently pestered his colleagues in RTE until in 1975, a sympathetic member of the RTE staff, who was sympathetic to the Irish gay rights movement and queer people more broadly, agreed to have Senator David Norris appear on Last House, which was a summer magazine programme that was broadcasting at the time. So that became the first ever appearance of a gay person on Irish television. And of course, the very first question put to David Norris on that show by the presenter, Anya O'Connor, was, are homosexuals sick people? So from that very first question posed to a gay person on Irish television, it became clear that sexuality and gay sexualities in particular were embroiled in pathological stereotypes and pathological rhetoric. And with that then, what emerges is the movement has to disassociate or devolve these associations with this pathological rhetoric so on these early appearances from that first appearance on last house the movement fosters a deliberate mainstreaming respectable strategy so why why they chose this was because they wanted to show broader irish audiences that gay people are just like you and they wanted to foster this aura of homonormativity of its time to a degree where they would replicate the standards of heteronormativity so gay people can form into familial units we have you know, couples who live in nice homes and kitchens and we bake bread and we have cups of tea which became the structuring force behind the second appearance of a queer couple in 1980 where Arthur Leahy and Laurie Steele appeared, who lived in Cork appeared in an RTE show Week In to demonstrate what life was like to live in Ireland under the climate of criminality as an out-gay couple. So respectability was a, an important governing force during this period. But not only that, the last point I'll I'll kind of say in this April is much of this programming was confined to current affairs. So this meant that queer people were not allowed onto entertainment programming or 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 even the chat shows at some point. And interestingly, at the start of this period in the 1970s, David Norris approached RTE producers who were in charge of Glen Rowe. So Glen Rowe was, I suppose, how do I make the comparison? The Dallas of Ireland, maybe, at the time. It was a rural soap opera that broadcasts every week on Sundays. And David Norris said, what better way to improve attitudes towards the queer community than to have one of the main cast come out or to write in a gay character? But when he proposed this to the colleagues in the writer's room, he was laughed out of it. So this very much symbolized the fact that queer people were going to be confined to news and current affairs programming. And the reason for that was purely because it was made out to be a current affairs issue because of the climate of criminality and the laws that were in place at the time.
0: Yeah. And so since sex between men continued to be criminalized throughout the 1980s, and obviously with the oppressive Irish regime surrounding women, lesbians were also largely invisible in Ireland up to this point. So, the But we experienced this shift nonetheless in the 1980s. So in what ways did media coverage of LGBTQ people change in the 1980s?
1: So we see significant change very simply because we actually, for the first time, see lesbians emerge, God forbid lesbians, but they were there from the start of the movement. And again, This comes down to one of the key arguments of the book, that when we talk about the story of queer visibility in Ireland, often by what we mean true queer, is gay. Because much of the book, the examples and the materials that I looked at, is gay. And to a lesser extent, I do point out, lesbians do emerge in this narrative, but deliberately so they're left out. This comes down to a number of reasons. For one, we've discussed already the climate of criminality, it criminalised gay men this obfuscated women from the picture, despite the fact that many lesbians were significant allies in that fight for the campaign for decriminalization, and have since not necessarily gotten as much recognition as they have should, as they should have even, for their fight for that alongside us. Not only that, it also shows that media institutions were Misogynistically, only interested in the male experience, as tends to be with media institutions. So, with that, we see lesbians once again being left out of the fold. Then, oftentimes, misogyny within the community ensured, and I'm talking about the gay community here, ensured that lesbians were also left out of the picture consistently. But what we see to happen in the 1980s is that the diversity of visibility does begin to become more contoured with new faces, new people, and new kinds of sexualities. So what we see in 1980 then is the shift happens when, on the one hand, we see lesbians emerge. So in 1980, in The Late Late Show, we see Joni Crone appear, who is the first self-declared Irish lesbian. And Joni Crone, if anyone has met her, is absolutely fabulous and a stalwart of queer activism in Ireland. But what happens on The Late Late Show then is the treatment of women versus gay men on television is significantly different. Joni is subjected to misogynistic tropes consistently and sensationalistic tropes to a great degree and this happens with the lesbian nuns later in nineteen eighty five as the chapter explores. But Joni is asked is her sexuality a result of a unwanted sexual encounter with a man? So a sexual assault because all sexualities are a formation of sexual assault as inferred by the presenter. Did she choose this lifestyle? Is she butch? Does she go around like a ravenous wolf All of these misogynistic terms used to confer the sensationalistic framework on a woman. But also, there's this compulsory heterosexuality, as theorized by Adrienne Rich in in her book on heterosexuality. But what we see here is that the terms in which a lesbian comes out on national television then becomes conferred in, well, what about children? Do you not grieve the fact that you will never be a mother? and what about, you know, family, and what about homemaking? And all of these issues become discursive sites by which the woman, and the lesbian woman in particular, becomes shaped. So that's one of the shifts that we begin to see, that the treatment of lesbian visibility is significantly different. But what we also begin to see then is, on the one hand in chapter in chapter two, with regards to the early appearances of gay men on current affairs television, this was for the liberatory liberatory even potential of achieving more social recognition, proving that gay people exist and reaching out to other queers in the country to show that there are communities there for them if they so wish to choose to join them. Whereas the media cooperate on that front, when we get to chapter three, particularly with the Late Late Show, which at the time was Ireland's largest chat and entertainment show, it would regularly bring in over 1 million viewers a week. Um, on Saturday nights. What we see here is this really sensationalistic, televisual sensationalistic framework being co-opted. So they would deliberately co-opt queer identities to boost the ratings. Kind of similar to what happens in the U.S., particularly with Ellen's first kiss during sweeps week and whatnot. They would often use sexuality to for the monetary gain of getting more audiences so they can get more fun- money and funding from advertisers during the ad breaks. And the production team and my interviews with members of that production team said to me that if they were having a dry week on the Late Late Show in terms of filling the schedule as who would be the guests, who would be the entertainment, many have said that if it was a dry week, they'd say, well, there's always good mileage and sex and sexuality. So let's maybe make that an issue. So what you often began to see then was, on The Late Late Show, this televisual sensationalistic framework being used to co-opt queer identities in a way that put them in these really problematic terms. So it completely went against what the movement was trying to do. So this gets to the core of my argument of the book, in that queer visibility is a tug of war. Queer history, history in general, is not a simple linear narrative from progress to liberation. but Queer history, in particular, is certainly not that. And especially when we're talking about visibility. And it comes back to what I said at the start with you, April, in terms of positive versus negative. That's far too simplistic. It's too binarized, It's more complex. It's more nuanced. History is very much the same. So what we see constantly, consistently throughout queer media history in Ireland and its relationship with queer Irish culture is that it's a tug of war between media activists and the institutions. The institutions which have different vested interests. Oftentimes, they're economical, whereas with the community, it's trying to ascertain visibility for social justice, human rights, and whatnot. So that's what the shift happens in this chapter and in this part of the book. We begin to see how visibility becomes a tug of war because of the economic intentions or the economic currents that undergird and define media institutions in Ireland, but also the social justice agenda that many within the Irish gay civil rights movements had throughout this era.
0: You, you also have pretty clever chapter titles here. And I wanted to just draw attention to this one, which was 50 shades of gay. So obviously that's a play on these sort of, well, there's a lot of mass. well, Misogyny in in this chapter with with the letters that were written about the both tony and uh or joni and um the the lesbian nuns um, but tell me a little bit about how you came to that title uh and in sort of what it's drawing on from this chapter
1: so yeah that's a title I'm particularly proud of, so thanks for asking me about that so again the answer is quite nuanced so the actual presenter of the late late show his name was Gay Byrne and he was a very famous person in Ireland and On the one hand, Fifty Shades of Gay attests to the ways in which Gay Byrne approached sexuality on the show. So Gay Byrne wasn't just a presenter of this show. He was also the driving force as the producer for over 40 years. So he was really central to the dynamics, the structure, the production, the reception, and the broadcasting of this enterprise, this huge cultural institution in Ireland. And he approached each different case differently. And there was a different to be literal shade of them in every single interview. And I think that kind of attests to the fact that, you know, kind of fed into the whole 50 shades of gay argument. But also there was never, you know, a consistency with regards to the ways in which queerness was mediated on The Late Late Show, other than for the economic gains. But the tenet of the interview or the message of the interviews or the use of it was always very different. And there's a shift even within the... 1980s, with regards to the community, the community becomes really aware of the structures of the late late show. So the Irish gay civil rights movement, it's very well aware that this is the juggernaut of Irish media. That if we can get onto this show and get our message out, we will convince a lot of people to our cause. And this happens later in the book with the soapbox debate in 1988. So just to give some context to that soapbox debate from 1980, or that was in 1988. Yes, sorry, apologies. So just to get some context of the soapbox debate in 1988, the criminal laws to the David Norris's campaign for homosexual law reform, which went through a series of Irish High Court and Supreme Court judgments, ended up in the European Court of Human Rights in 1988, of which the European Court said that the laws in Ireland were unjust and Ireland needs to change the laws. So as a result, the community in Ireland felt that while there was the legal process that found a just answer the conversation never happened publicly. And that while legally things may have changed, we also need to bring people along with us with that change because we need the support of them and we need the backing of them. So they approached RTE and they originally wanted to go on to to Today Tonight, which was a primetime current affairs show. They said no, but subsequently the late, late show approached them. So by this stage, the Irish gay civil rights movement and Glenn which was the Gay and Lesbian Equality Network and the movement at the time, uh, the centralized activist body, they were well aware of the structure of how the Late Late attempted to manipulate the agenda, how they would plant people in the audience to ask questions, and how they tended to set it up as a gladiatorial contest between an extreme position on the right wing versus the gays trying to defend their agenda and their existence. So they were well aware of this. So from that, they cleverly sought media training from a PR company. They deliberately placed through their links in RTE sympathetic people in the movement in the audience who could counteract anyone that comes in and they essentially played the late, late show production culture at its own game so what we see happening here is that the community in this tug of war of visibility becomes aware of the terms of play the power play that's at work here and as a result they say right well we'll come to the master's table we'll use his tools to destroy the table so with that They emerge as the victors in this argument, in this debate, because they have so strategically placed. And even in this interview, they have shifted Gay Burns' opinion by the end of it. So what we're seeing is even Fifty Shades of Gay in terms of how the community has transformed their politics and their media activism in how they approach a production culture. And production cultures are really important in this book. And that's just an example of how the community just really became media savvy and how they approached oftentimes a homophobic process of production.
0: That's really interesting. And I'm actually interviewing Sonia Tiernan about her marriage equality book later this summer. Um, and I think I think this is true of the Irish gay rights movement into the 21st century, right, with the marriage equality. They're very savvy with media. They turn to the social media, which you don't get into very much. You stop right before that that boom. but you, you comment on it. I think that's very a very astute observation.
1: And yeah, even um, with that, Ava, yeah. just on that point, you see these, like, albeit social media, it's a different beast and it's got its own dynamic and it's very specific infrastructures and it's a lot more complex networks and whatnot. We see similar narratives emerge in 1988's debate in The Late Late Show and that social media campaign for Yes Equality in 2015. We see storytelling. And people telling their own stories as being a really important discursive means of trying to change minds, change opinions, getting people to come out to family members. Because coming out, it's very hard to discriminate against somebody that you know. And also, the use of the Irish Mammy. So on that Late late Show debate, the Irish Mammy, as said by many of my participants, is a very powerful force in Ireland. And, you know, it kind of comes from Mother Era, Yeats and whatnot. But culturally, the mother serves as a really important cultural role and that's the same for queer cultures um, you know again motherhood and queer culture is a whole different conversation and has so many variances within it but in Irish culture in particular the Irish mother emerges as this really powerful force that shows the old symbolic order that was considered conservative realigning with new liberal ideals and that shift that they represent is really important for shifting the audience's minds at home such as with Phil Moore, who appeared in that late show appearance. She was the head of Parents Inquiry, which was an organisation developed and founded to help parents of LGBT children in Ireland, which was inspired by Rose Robertson in the UK, who founded Parents Inquiry in general. But what I'm saying with that is, if you remember Yes Equality, mothers coming out in support of their sons, like former President Mary McAleese in support of her son, Justin McAleese, who had just come out as gay. That is a really powerful thing that happens, and You can kind of see, albeit it's in very different media environments, similar strategies emerge and similar states of play emerge.
0: Yeah, and really successfully too. It works. Yeah. Before we get too far from the Late Late Show, because I know know, we'll shift gears to talk about the sort of internally generated media of the the Irish gay rights movement. Tell me, did you get to interview Gay Byrne? I know he passed away in 2019, but that would have been, you know, around the time you were finishing up.
1: This was a not a major disappointment at the project, but I wrote to Byrne, and he, the gentleman that he was, did write back to me and said he was just very sick at the time. And that in the meantime, I should contact Edmund Lynch. He had done an interview with Edmund Lynch and he gave me full permission to use that interview in my project. But that if he gets better, and I sent out that letter somewhere in my file somewhere, because I really do treasure it. He was so kind in of it. But he said, if I get better, let me know. I, I don't think he came back to radio from that letter but he at the very least knew about the project and he was interested if his health improved but at the very least his words are in the book in that chapter from edmund lynch and to be honest in as much as he was playing the role of producer and as much as he was quite problematic in how he um approached this in the end he certainly was an ally for the community um as testament from his declaration during the yes equality campaign
0: yeah absolutely awesome well that's that's something special certainly definitely so as you said you you make this really strong argument about the significance of media to the Irish gay rights movement which took off in the mid 1980s but this was also the same period as the global AIDS crisis, which also hit Ireland pretty hard. Um, You know, we don't get a lot of press about it and there's there's very recent work being done on it. But in what ways did the AIDS crisis disrupt queer visibility? And then how did the gay rights movement groups face that challenge using media?
1: Right. Really interesting question. And just to kind of speak back ever so briefly to what we've just discussed, we've kind of mentioned the tug of war so far in the story of queer Irish visibility. But when we come to the AIDS crisis and the first diagnosis of AIDS in Ireland in 1983, we come to a disruption in that tug of war and the dynamics of visibility are ever changed. The The community energy needs to go elsewhere. So and the community energy is kind of split and splinter. So while many were behind the likes of the Hirschfeld Centre at the time, which was the community hub in Temple Bar in Dublin, and many were behind the campaign for homosexual law reform and In varying different civil rights movements, such as the Dublin Lesbian and Gay Collective, and there was lots of stuff happening in Cork, all the way in Limerick, AIDS demanded the community to stand to attention and to channel their energies into really creating resources for a public health need that was being ignored by the government. So it becomes this disruptive force that really demonstrates the the power of the community, the energy of the community the sheer determination and perseverance of the community because this is a time when when aids hit ireland we see the government sit on its hand sit on its wallets refusing to do anything about this and the community is like even though there's similarities between COVID 19 and and the the aids pandemic in that This was an ever-evolving crisis and pandemic that we didn't really understand what this was. The community didn't understand how this was transmitted. So they, as a result of not having any support from government, the Irish community, queer community itself, said we have to take ownership for ourselves. We need to do something about this. So Gay Health Action was formed as a community group corralled from varying different civil rights groups and actors and essentially sought to fight the AIDS crisis in Ireland through the dissemination of information, through the generation of links with international contexts, and through securing funding and distributing uh, contraception. So just to get on that point of contraception, when AIDS was beginning to ravage Ireland, what we see is that condoms weren't even legal in the country at the time until 1985. As a result of the Family Law Amendment Act 1985, we then get condoms being distributed in Ireland. Only if you were married and only if you had a prescription from your doctor, so with all of these legal frameworks in place to access these simple contra- contraceptives, the community is left very vulnerable, not only by you know a Catholic dogmatic society with a moral habitus and ethos that is very destructive, but you have a government and a structure that isn't even incubating safe sex. So the community becomes really active and they start generating their own media because they're seeing sensationalism in mainstream press, they're seeing sensationalism on television, AIDS death constantly being on a red-top newspaper. They said, we need to generate information on our own terms suited to our needs. So the gay press becomes very much centred around the AIDS crisis. And we see the likes of the gay press becoming much more centralised within the community. So we see Out Magazine emerge as a commercial gay magazine, and the first commercial gay magazine of its kind in Ireland. And much of Out's reportage and coverage and journalism was dedicated to transmitting and disseminating AIDS information. Strategically, the Irish Gay Rights Movement, not the Irish Gay Rights Movement, the, the National Gay Federation, the Hirschfeld Center, and Gay Health Action, they made strategic links with the likes of the New York Native publication in New York, the Body Politic in Canada, to get up-to-date articles simply on how to use a condom reprinted and reposted into Out magazine to disseminate to Irish um queers. So what we see is the generation of a queer press because with a government that's doing nothing and with a press and a national media that's saying nothing and if they're saying anything they're saying sensationalistic vilified things the community is left to their own devices to cre- so we see the emergence of a queer counterpublic as that chapter argues in chapter 4 where while AIDS is disrupted the standard the standard of play as it were it enables the emergence of a queer counterpublic and a queer network and a media economy within the community itself. And that still transcends to this day. The the energy from that magazine kind of followed on with many of the people that were involved to the founding of GCN with Tony Walsh and Catherine Glendon in the early in the in the early nineties. So what you see then, and that still is Ireland's longest queer running publication and now queer paper of record. So many things came from that moment. But That's one of the things we see. We see queer media emerge as a really, really important infrastructure for the community in terms of maintaining public health standards. And what also happens is queer alliances begin to emerge in documentaries. So many in the community at the time were seeing a US-UK centricity to broader representations of AIDS. There was nothing about Irish people with AIDS on television. So Alan Gilson, a director here in Ireland, he was approached by two friends, basically saying, listen, we are doing AIDS training with doctors, with communities, and there's actually nothing with an Irish voice. Would you produce something for us and get something together? So he started just doing this community project, and that eventually began to gather legs. And through the community, it became... um, This documentary that was broadcast in RTE, Stories from the Silence. So, through this pocket of community activism and through these alliances with queer communities, you see these documentaries beginning to emerge. So, we have Stories from the Silence, but also Bill Hughes's Finton. This is a really interesting case because this documentary is centered around gay man Bill Hughes and his friend from his hometown in County Caldera Thigh, Finton Brennan. And Finton was aware of, you know, Bill's career as a as a producer and whatnot and said to him before I die I want you to record me as I was I want you to just and I want you to show that to my family I want them my family to tell you what they thought of me so Bill did this and again it started as just a personal commemorative project about Fenton and from that then Bill got the rushes together and he interviewed the family afterwards and said there's actually something in this and went to RTE, the independent production unit in RTE at the time. And the independent production unit in RTE, just it was kind of outside of it, but under the structure of the organization. So they had some sort of dispensation and space to be that little bit more playful or creative without the structures of the organization saying, we can't do that. Um, Because also during this time, RTE refused to broadcast uh, AIDS adverts at the time. And actually, our current president, Michael D. Higgins, who was the Minister for Culture, Communications, and the Gael Talk at the time, said to RTE, he demanded that they would or he would take some statutory action. So he forced them to do so. So fair play to him. But I digress. So Bill Hughes approached the independent production unit at RTE, and he showed it to a friend and colleague there, and they said that this is a work of national importance. So all of a sudden then, you got funding to turn this project into an hour-long documentary for broadcast. So we see these queer alliances happening in the community in which all of a sudden this community activism actually enters mainstream production cultures and takes the shape of a mainstream documentary that really begins to shape. So it's the, so AIDS becomes disruptive in varying different ways. It's disruptive in the ways in which... Um, we interact and the queer community interacted with production cultures, but also how they began to produce their own means of communication.
0: Yeah. So once we get to decriminalization in 1993, obviously there's another shift in terms of representation, but before we get there, obviously the AIDS crisis extends into the nineties for Ireland. So do you think that the challenges faced in this later eighties into the early nineties period because of the AIDS crisis um, and the gay rights movement and the the fight for for decriminalization. Do you think that impacted the ways that queer media visibility emerged in these sort of fictional televised productions?
1: So the ways in which AIDS affected that absolutely. Um, we see in the US and the UK um, what's referred to in the literature and in popular presses as the gay nineties, whereas we see this eruption of Paraphernalia, um, broadcasting, magazine covers of queer people all over it. U.S. Weekly, Us Weekly, and lots of magazines having you know Ellen's kiss on front of was it People magazine or U.S. Weekly? Maybe I'm not too sure, but. We see a series of, and the the gay kiss and friends, the gay wedding and friends, Will and Grace. There's this huge in in the UK. We have the gay kiss and Brookside. We have the gay kiss and Eastenders. These really big soap operas that have millions of viewers, twenty millions of viewers a night. So in Ireland, this lags significantly behind. And you can actually count on like one hand the amount of appearances in entertainment programming in Irish television we have in the 1990s. I think that's one of, part of a few reasons. One is for sure the criminalization of homosexuality. It's not lifted until 1993 as a result of the Fianna fall and Labour coalition in the Irish Aroctus. So that's all well and good. So finally, once this happens, finally, this ha- once this happens, what we see is that cultural producers now kind of go, okay, now this is fair game to perhaps start incorporating queers into our productions. But also to come back to your original question, yes. AIDS was certainly a spectre that haunted the edges of this entertainment programming as well because it certainly contributed to a lot of shame and stigma. And even to this day, Averill, it still does um, shave much of the discourse that happens, particularly in g- regards to how we cover it. How prep is covered in Irish press c- today is very anachronistic. It's very retrograde. It's very much couched in problematic terms, the ways in which HIV rates rising day on day is framed is problematic and couched in problematic terms. Even recently, a newspaper outlet in the last number of years suggested that one could transmit HIV through Smith. So there's still a lot of work to be done on this. But again, I, I kind of digress. But so yes, in the nineties we see another shift, and um, this shift sees finally the queers leave the, the realms of current affairs and they are led into the emerald city of entertainment programming. So what we see is that pop culture in Ireland begins to materialize queers on the sitcom and the soap opera. Now, Ireland, of course, does things backwards. And what happens is that in our quest for modernity or a postmodern sexual identity, as it were, we have a, so- we have a sitcom called Upwardly Mobile. And the writers of Upwardly Mobile were very conscious, and this is fully available on YouTube for any of the listeners to have a look at, all series. I don't know if you've watched any of it, April, but it might be something for you to do after our chat. <laughs> but fully available on YouTube. Um, and what that sitcom attempted to do was the writers were fully aware that this was a post-decriminalization moment. And this kind of chapter is about this post-decriminalization moment, because many of the The actors, the writers, producers involved were aware of that. So that shaped how this was written. But on that day, there's a character called Toby O'Driscoll. And Toby is a friend of the main cast who's in every episode. He has an invisible wife who's never seen. He's constantly at a sauna that's only male exclusive. And he's constantly in gilets cycling his bike and making innuendos about riding his Brazilian friend Bruno waxing, and how he hates sex with his wife and wishes that she could have surgery to be a man. So lots of these problematic tropes emerge. So Toby never formally comes out of the closet. But Toby is coded as queer in the way in which um what we see is that he's couched in stereotypes such as John Inman's Mr. Humphreys in Are You Being Served? And it's very much speaks about his queer sexuality through innuendo and affected feminine gestures such as a limp wrist or an intonated voice that's very feminine and shrieky and that's what we get with toby and so when i was kind of examining this i kind of went and this is when i wasn't doing interviews and fostering these production studies or production methodology or production studies methodologies so i kind of went hmm i feel like there's something to that that i'm not getting there's a part of the puzzle here that i'm not seeing So from that, then I interviewed some of the writers who actually said, yes, Toby was gay. We recognised Toby as gay, but we actually had no experience of writing gay characters whatsoever. So we just leaned on what we knew from media and from previous broadcasts. So because they had no legitimacy or they had no literacy with how to write gay characters or gay sitcom characters, they fell on retrograde stereotypes. Similarly, the actor who played Toby he kind of said, oh, I certainly read Toby as gay. I certainly knew that he he was and such. And I was kind of disappointed that the the character never got to develop fully. And he was kind of never really written properly and fully. So that was concern. So what they kind of felt and the sense of that was, was that although we're in the post-decriminalization moment, RTE was still too tentative to go all the way with the gay. And they were still too tentative to really demonstrably portray or have a coming out moment at all so what we see is a very conservative approach to the irish gay 90s which is significantly different to what the us and the uk did now both the us and the uk are very conservative in how to do things you know i think of the gay wedding from friends for example that you know while radical at the time when you watch back and you're kind of going quite conservative and problematic in another respect so in that sense conservatism is undergirding this emergence into the entertainment pop culture sphere. But we do get a coming out moment on Fair City, the soap opera. And on Fair City, we see the character, Owen, emerge in 1995. He is a guest character on the show. He comes into it solely for the coming out moment and then leaves again, never to be seen, never to be heard of. And then all of a sudden, a number of years later, he comes back, in, a number of months later, he comes back into the show as a fully-fledged cast member and he is essentially brought in for the gay kiss storyline. So what we're seeing is that the reductive writing of characters becomes centred solely around sexuality. Alan, who played on on the show, he noted that when he was cast, he came in for the coming out. Following the coming out, he left the show and was asked to come back again. But this time it was for the gay kiss. And then after that was for the relationship. So he felt that there wasn't an opportunity to develop and write a really believable character and that his identification on the show was only solely hung around a coat hanger on these gay queer moments. And that there wasn't the space for this character to have a sustainable representational space on Irish television. And he felt that that was really problematic and whatnot. He loved playing the character, he loved the show but he kind of said that there needed to be more space to actually manifest this gay yeah, character. So funnily enough, then, with regards to the gay kiss, RTE is referred to the gay kiss as this watershed moment that is really significant, that is RTE finally entering the new age of modernity in which they're accepting of diversity, inclusion, and equality. And even RTE's most famous show, Reeling in the Years, which is Ireland's most populous popular television show, um which is this basically audiovisual archival show that's 30 minutes long that looks towards Irish history and whatnot, or of a particular year. That has The Gay Kiss in Fair City. But interestingly, while it's called The Gay Kiss and The Ireland's First Gay Kiss, a kiss doesn't happen. It's a near kiss. And there's a very particular production situation that led to that near kiss. What happened was, in the original script, Owen and this character, Liam had a kiss in a kitchen and they shared an intimate moment. But then when it came to rehearsing it the day before the shooting of the broadcast version, the kiss was omitted. And then there were promised by production, oh no, don't worry, the kiss will be back in it tomorrow. So they came in to shoot the episode that would be the version that would go to air. And what happened was that the kiss wasn't in the script, and then Owen, or Alan, who was very passionate about his character Owen, approached the producer and said, I see the kiss is gone. What's the story? Are we doing this or not? And He was essentially told through um, one way, through the jigs and the reels, as it were, that the kiss wasn't happening and that the suits upstairs were concerned about it and that it wouldn't be happening. So Alan kind of said, we're at a really, really important moment here. He says, like, Melrose Place are about to do this. We could be on the international scale with Melrose Place. We could really make a mark for ourselves here by doing this. Let's just have the bravery to do this. But no, it wasn't to be at all and even as he went on he eventually went got into a relationship with another character later in the the series a few years later and it was never written into the script that him and his boyfriend would hold hands or kiss but they would have to put it in themselves through their own kind of mini ways of getting onto camera and oftentimes it was cut but sometimes it made it in and that was their way of strategizing that some sort of gay intimacy made it on screen so you can see particular modes of regulation particular modes of tentativeness and conservatism do control the contours of visibility during this period through those particular case studies that I look at. So once again, while we're in this decriminalization moment, April, what we're seeing is that tug of war once again, that while we're making this progress, we're only going to give you that, that little bit of it. We're going to pull you back a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I one of the one of the moments in that chapter that really resonated with me was you talked about at least one of the actors who played a gay character. Maybe this or maybe this is the next chapter, but they they essentially had to go on a talk show to assert that they were not themselves in real life gay, right like and that sort of tentativeness is also really startling or or, or not maybe not maybe expected but but still sort of feels like a part of that tug of war right a step forward, but then a major step back
1: absolutely. And this is, comes down to the institutional treatment of the gay case. so that's when Peter Warnock, the, car- the the actor who played Liam, he appeared on Kenny Live, which was a Saturday Night Show that went out on RTE. So again, this is all of RTE's own institutional programming promoting this within the era of scarcity. But he's part of this relatively progressive storyline, and I say relatively because we got a near kiss. Like, listen, there's queers on TV in the nineties in Catholic Ireland. It's something. It's not great. It's something though. So that's me. That's me being blasé But what I mean is. Peter Warnock appears on Kenny Live and he's asked by the presenter, you know, it's like a opens with this. And I have it in front of me here. My next young guest. My next guest is a young man who has created quite a stir once he arrived in Carrickstown, a real sex symbol. The ladies of Carrickstown, as well as those at home, were knocked out by his good looks. Imagine the shock, though, when he almost got caught in an embrace with Owen, a character who has been acknowledged to be gay, Like, that is the intro that the presenter makes for this character. So already we're on this snooty, condescending footing with the storyline. And then when he comes out, essentially, Pat Kenny asks Peter Warnock, and what did your family make of the script? What did they make of the storyline? And then he kind of just goes, my grandfather just told me to think of the cheque. So literally, he's gay for pay. Think of the cheque, honey. Um, And I just find that baffling. Absolutely. And I think that's possibly the gayest thing of the whole thing, right? Or the queerest thing of the whole thing, the gay for pain element. But here we are. And I just feel like, yes, April, that completely speaks to that tug of war dynamic that even RT institutionally, which are allowing the kiss, are actually then throwing out these other dynamics that are completely disrupting the contours of that.
0: Oh, what a disappointment to the the gay viewers, the young men at home, boys at home. Over. Oh, the
1: writers to GCN were furious. The writers to Gay Community News were absolutely... There was one letter that said, oh, come on, we have some gays on TV. Let them just have a kiss and a shag. Come on. I remember that was a line in one of the, the letters. So the the community of Ireland were up in arms.
0: Good. <laughs> uh, but obviously, we have some better, greater progress with the Celtic Tiger, right? The period of economic boom, And I think I'd love you to talk a little bit about how that that period, that shift in Ireland, socially, economically, politically, maybe shaped queer visibility, particularly on on these popular television programs, these entertainment television.
1: Yeah. So I come to chapter six, which is queer visibility, television drama and the Celtic Tiger. So that goes from 1999 to 2007. So as you pointed out rightly earlier, I do end the book around this point of 2007, 2008, because if I go any further than this, I can't not look into social media. And that itself becomes its own whole thing with the way in which the networked social media society and infrastructure interacts with mainstream media. And again, certainly part of a a book project for the future. But what this book or what this chapter aims to do is to look at the globalization of queer Irish identity. And it opens up with the coming out of Stephen Gately, who was a member of the Irish boy band Boyzone. Now, I don't think you could think about a gayer name than Boyzone, deliberately so now. But, but, and Boyzone with a Z, for those of you who are not familiar with them. But with this, Stephen becomes one of the first boy band members in the UK and Ireland and Europe to be openly gay. And I think this is prior to George Michael, actually, although I might be standing corrected on that. But this is really significant and important because this puts global Irish queers on a footing internationally. And it brings international queer Irishness to the fore a bit and that's kind of is my opening salvo to the chapter that represents much of the discourse that comes from this so the Celtic Tiger is very international in its outlook it's it's as a result of international foreign direct investment in Ireland particularly in the construction industry and because Ireland's economic system becomes more global and Ireland itself becomes a global site for international business with the likes of Apple and Amazon and whatnot choosing to locate here, we see a sense of modernity coming to Ireland. And this sense of modernity similarly comes with media, media significantly changing at the time. The media infrastructure has changed substantially. We now have gone from the era of scarcity to the era of choice. We've satellite television. We have many numbers of channels to choose from. And as a result, that puts huge pressure on the likes of RTE. RTE. In terms of, and Irish broadcasters, we have a few new broadcasters such as TV3 emerge and TG4 at the time. And it puts huge pressure on them to be able to compete with these international broadcasts and broadcasters from the US and the UK. So at the time, shows such as Sex and the City, Will and Grace, Friends, they become re- buffy, charmed. These shows become really, really popular in Ireland on Irish channels, We buy them in from the U.S. as foreign imports, but also U.S. and U.K. channels are here broadcasting them. So Irish networks feel this pressure to keep up with the fashionable, up-to-date, contemporary quality television as it was at the time. And part of that was whole new tropes of queerness. So queerness then begins to emerge through these shows that are being imported. Irish people are beginning to see gay characters played by Murray Bartlett on Sex and the City, for example, or gay storylines of Will and Grace, or as we said, The Gay Wedding and Friends. And this really becomes a crucial, crucial dynamic in transforming the industry. So we see a swath of new programming emerge that attempts to interact with this. So reality TV, for example, we have the likes of Eurostar, A Singing Contest, Treasure Island, Off the Rails. These bring in queer presenters and gay presenters and contestants. So there's a whole new emergence of a I suppose a generation that's more diverse. TV dramas begin to shoot in gay clubs and gay bars so even the iconography or what Dublin looks like begins to change significantly. It begins to change from the dreary drab Dublin of the 90s and 80s that we see in the likes of the Barrytown trilogy with the Commitments and the Snapper to something that's cosmopolitan, global sexy and cool. So This global cosmopolitanism, sexiness and coolness, becomes embedded in TV drama. And I selected The Clinic, which was an Irish variation of, I suppose, Grey's Anatomy. It was a local variation of the medical drama, internationally recognisable, but set in a clinic around a set of characters that are doctors, classic surgeons and nurses and whatnot. And this introduces a character called Alex, who... Represents this whole new cosmopolitan, transglobal, transglobal queer coolness, and he kind of fosters the role of Carson Kresley on Queer Eye from the Straight Guy, in which he dresses up his male colleagues in better clothing. He's the gay best friend for his um, gay best friend for his female friends in their plight with guys, and he serves as this neoliberal character that's a disciplinary force in the in the text that teaches all the other characters how to judiciously work on the self and how to consume consume tastefully. So he serves as this very queer eye for the straight eye role within the show. And this is kind of representative of much of what we see in the US and the UK during this period, this neoliberal citizen that the queer embodies, that they are consumers and purveyors of taste, fashion, and class, and that this certainly becomes embodied within this cosmopolitanism. And he is used as a conduit by which we can see this new and emerging Dublin. When we're with Alex, we're in an art gallery in the Irish Museum of Modern Art. We're in the George Gay Bar in Dublin. We're we're on the streets of some sexy market in Smithfield. So we are at the cusp of this city, which has changed substantially since the 90s. So that's kind of the ways in which we begin to see it emerge. And it kind of really becomes a dose or a symptomatic of the Celtic Tiger as this. Ireland that's now modern, that's changed, that's now all-accepting and all-in and all-inclusive all of queerness. And that's kind of where the book ends to a degree, that this is the moment of, you know, oh, wow, opportunity and liberation. But at the start of that chapter, this is also, in terms of the literature, the most, I suppose, stagnant part of, or the stagnant moment of gay Irish activism or queer Irish activism. Now, towards the end of the 2000s, particularly in 2008, we see the marriage equality movement begin to become mobilized by Catherine Zubon and Anne-Louise Gilligan's case. And the Cal case becomes mobilized from 2004 to 2008 into a series of marriage equality movements. And that's kind of where I depart the book into my conclusion then. So that's kind of what happens during the Celtic Tiger era. We become globalized, we become sexy, we become cool
0: yeah <laughs> <Certainly>. <laughs> how great
1: obviously when it's problematic after effects
0: yeah yeah i mean and obviously throughout the book you're touching on moments when parts of irish queer visibility are globalizing right they're like seeking out ways to break into and make connections with the international gay rights movement the international aids awareness movement but yeah, I think you're right that that it's when when Ireland opens its doors, it allows sort of the world to see what Ireland is beyond just this this narrow vision.
1: Absolutely. And just on that point, it's really important to point out that Ireland in chapter in chapter six doesn't just become transglobal and global and international. But it was always that way, April. You're absolutely right. You mean in the earliest appearance on the first appearance of a gay man on Irish television, Franklin E. Kameny from the Match Shine Society in the US. He was there uh, as an insert to speak to the Irish gay community. So these international coalitions have always been there throughout the decades.
0: Now, Park, I don't know if this was a question you set out to answer, but I think it's one that you are going a long way to answer in this book. And um, it's why 1993? Why was that the moment that Ireland finally decriminalized sex between men? And it's a question that we scholars of Irish sexuality have been mulling over for decades now. And I think. I think your book really goes a long way to helping us answer that.
1: So why is 1993 the moment? There's kind of several reasons for that. For one, it's just such a long process that David Norris had to decriminalize it through his campaign for homosexual law reform. He initially took it to the high court, was thrown out by conservative judges, went to the Supreme Court, was thrown out by conservative judges. And those cases took three years in the first hand, five years in the second hand. Then, finally, to the European Court of Human Rights, where the judgment did happen in 1988. But, although that judgment happened, nothing happened in terms of the government. And this is kind of the really important part. That bill sat there, and none of the preceding governments did anything about it. And this is like a really, really, really important strategic point for the Gay, Lesbian and Equality Network, Glen, And they were waiting for... They kept lobbying the government to do this. They kept lobbying them to try and it was Fianna Fáil governments during the period and it was just never on the agenda for them so in this moment prior to 1993 it's just wavering away there as the community tries to get the government to to legislate for this and it's not until Fianna Fáil go into a coalition government with the Labour Party the Labour Party generally has been a party centered around now i say this in previous years, not necessarily been the case, but centred around ideals of of social justice and fair distribution of economic wealth and whatnot, and fair taxation, and they had sympathetic members towards the community in that. So, as part of the deal with the government, mora Gig and Quinn was the minister for justice at the time, and this kind of really did enable the Irish gay rights movement, the Irish gay civil rights movement to engage with them. Now, she was a Fianna Fáil politician, but the Labour coalition really did help get the gay people, or get Glenn, into the room. So once, and Labour were very much lobbying Fianna Fáil as part of being a government coalition and partnership to hear them out. So, essentially, Gagan Quinn was the Minister for Justice at the time. She had complete say over this area. And Glenn strategically used the Irish mammy, Phil Moore, who we saw in that late, late debate, late show debate back in 1988. And Phil Moore spoke to Maura Gagan Quinn and just opened up the question, are you a mother? And she said, yes, I am. And then she goes and she began the conversation like that. And the rest, as they say, is history. And Phil Moore used her powers of persuasion, used her powers of um, being able to relate to another human, which she so beautifully has. And she really convinced Maura Gagin Quinn that day, and Maura Gagin Quinn said, "I would support this bill wholeheartedly." And that is then when we see the move towards formalising the decriminalisation bill. So there's a really nice story in that moment before we see decriminalisation in 1993. And now it is a battle from the European judgment to that five years. It's a long time to sit in that, right? But it happens, and that's the in-between bit there. the reason why it took so long historically, well, we can frame I call, I, being, Ireland being a colony, British imperialism, British imperialism and the, their laws still being part of our administrative structures, coupled with the fact that the movement didn't really try to destroy or to counteract those laws until the 70s. So it was actually quite a quick process from the get-go. Yeah,
0: when and you I, think about I, it. I have to imagine that like the young men and women who saw themselves reflected in television for the first time in the 70s and the 80s, that that sort of visibility also sort of shifted the and opened the possibility for that for that, you know, legislative change. So um, really, really fascinating. But I think we've taken up enough of your time today. Uh, But before we let you go, will you tell us what is next? What projects or project are you working on now?
1: Yes, so what I'm actually working on now is a really exciting project. I am really, 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 um, really sorry if I say really one more time, does that convince you that I'm really excited about it? But it's a project about Dublin's Hirschfeld Centre. So it's currently titled Disco Liberation Dublin's Hirschfeld Centre and Queer Irish Memory. And this is essentially a book that's going to argue. About Dublin's Hirschfeld Centre, which ran from 1979 to 1987, being a really important support service and activist hub for the Irish LGBTQ community. And myself and my colleague Maria Primaggiore are co-authoring this book and are co-collaborating on this project, Are collaborating on this project. And we're arguing that this is an important institution for Irish cultural history and queer Irish history more broadly, because the Hirschfeld Centre is this center of activism, media activism. Um, it's the centre of diversity. It's the centre of huge energy that is centralised in Dublin nationally and internationally. It's not only this Dublin hub, but it has this national story. It has this international story. And what we're beginning to do now is we're going to start the process of collecting and collating queer oral histories from this project and collecting as many as possible to tell the most vibrant tale of this archive of the Hurstville that We don't want the story being forgotten. Many of these people are now older and we want to capture the stories of these really important older people in our community as to what happened in this institution. This institution has shaped many of the activists that went on to become powerful during the marriage equality referendum that and this incubated a generation of activists and a generation of queers and i think it's just really important that we account for the oral histories have them accessible for everybody but also that we account for this in the book and a series of multimedia events so that's kind of the big project that i'm working on with my colleague professor maria Fagior over the next few years so more on that soon
0: wow yeah sounds like something i can't wait to read (laughs) Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today, Parik. Um, I'm so delighted you were able to join us.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you. Folks, after you subscribe to the New Books in Irish Studies podcast, make sure you order yourself a copy of LGBTQ Visibility, Media, and Sexuality in Ireland for your own collection, because you do not want to miss this one. Park, thanks again for being on the show. Uh, I, I enjoyed chatting with you and about queer visibility in Irish media.
1: Thank um, you so much, April. Much appreciated.
0: Thanks again. Bye.
1: Bye.